Brothers and sisters, the text for the proclamation of the gospel this morning is Malachi 4, the verses 4 through 6. These words, remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. In response to the proclamation of the gospel, let us sing hymn 15, Comfort, Comfort Now My People. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, young and older. Today is the third Sunday of Advent on the church's calendar. And also on this day, we prepare and we await the celebration of the Savior's birth. Advent, you hear that word in the Latin equivalent, Adventus. And that word indicates a coming Not just the first coming, but even the second coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For we too, with the church of all ages, must be alert to the return of our Lord Jesus Christ on the clouds of heaven. And now our text closes the Old Testament, although in the Jewish Bible, it's not found really at the close of the Old Testament, The book of 2 Chronicles is, and that's because the Jews divide the Old Testament into three parts, the law, the prophets, and then the writings. The writings include such books as the Psalms and Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, but also 1 and 2 Chronicles. And yet, in our translation of the Bible, it is indeed the last part of the Old Testament. And then, A period of 400 years occurred before the Lord God opened the mouth of his angelic servant Gabriel who brought that message to Zechariah the priest even in the temple announcing the coming birth of his and his wife Elizabeth's son. The name of that son, of course, is John the Baptist a son who would be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth, as we can read in Luke 1, verse 15, that God might make a people prepared for the Lord, make ready that people prepared for him. Malachi, his name means my messenger, and he proclaimed God's word during those momentous days of both Nehemiah and Ezra. Days when the Lord God had had to rebuke his people again, even though it had not been that long since they returned from captivity, where the Lord had placed them for 70 years for exactly the same kind of sins, idolatry and adultery and all kinds of other sins. God's people, their worship had degenerated into mere formalism. It's very evident that when you read these books, Malachi, also Haggai, 
but Nehemiah and Ezra, then you see that the people just went through the motion. Sure, they still came to the temple for worship every Sabbath day, but it didn't seem like their hearts were in it. They were days when God's law and the prophets had again been neglected. And so in chapters 1 and 2 of his book, Malachi first described the many sins of his people, God's people. And then in chapters 3 and 4, he pointed to the judgment which would certainly come on those who refused to listen to the Lord, as well as the blessings, the blessings which rest upon God's people in the way of their obedience to the Lord. And now when he comes to the close of his prophecy, he returns to a theme which in a way sums up God's exhortation and his appeal to his people throughout the centuries, an appeal which remains the same also for us in our day, an appeal which says, Hear, O people, and live in covenant faithfulness, for the day of the Lord is coming. And then we hear three things, for the Lord in the first place maintains the foundation of covenant life, which is his law, his word. And in the second place, he effects the renewal of life by his gracious word. John the Baptist would be instrumental in that. And in the third place, he will not allow anyone to defy the Lord of life. Live in covenant faithfulness, for the day of the Lord is coming. The Lord maintains the foundation for covenant life. He effects the renewal of life by his gracious word but he will not allow anyone to defy the Lord of life. First, that he maintains the foundation for covenant life. The Lord our God builds his people, his church, as Paul writes to the congregation at Ephesus, on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. That's Ephesians 2, verse 20. And that sure foundation is his word, his revelation. And that word surely involves his holy law, which comprises not only the ten words of God's covenant, the holy law which we read this morning, although certainly it does that as well, but it really comprises the whole of his word. That's clear, for instance, from Paul's letter to the Galatians in chapter 5, 14. Be it that we usually think of the law of God in terms of the Ten Commandments. But now the Jews who had returned from exile in Babylon and who had rebuilt the temple were facing a number of discouraging situations. Situations which seem to have contributed to what we may call a general spiritual decline a despondency and a dejection which had given rise even to ungodly and unfaithful behavior. After their return from captivity, their country remained only a small province of that vast Persian empire, which really was a world empire. And the bright and glorious future that even the psalmist had spoken of also, the prophets Haggai and Zechariah had spoken of, that surely had not been realized. The coming of God to his temple with glory and with majesty, as King David had sung about it in Psalm 68, for instance, it appeared to have been put on hold. Nothing appeared 
to have been seen of it. And so we find Malachi deploring the people's doubting of God's covenant love. You find that especially in chapter 1, verse 2. They no longer trusted God's justice, and it appears that they had begun to lose hope altogether, especially concerning the coming of the Messiah. Chapter 2, 17, and in chapter 3, 14 and 15, the people and their leaders, indeed especially the leaders, the priests among God's people, had become faithless, says Malachi in chapter 1, verse 6, right through to the end of chapter 2, verse 16. And although the Lord was disappointed and angry with his people, yet he had not yet destroyed them because of their unfaithfulness. But, as Malachi says in chapter 3, the verses 6 to 12, they would be saved and protected only in the way of their repentance and their reformation. It would not just come about automatically. It was because, as God said, I, the Lord, do not change. He maintains his covenant promises, but also his covenant demands. He maintains his faithfulness. He remembers his remnant chosen by grace and he returns his people as he has done so often throughout history, returns his people to his word, to his law. And you hear him doing so in verse 4 of our text. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and the laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. And the Lord left his people without doubt that the law that he was speaking about was his law, his very own law. Moses, that he mentions, the law of my servant Moses. Moses was only God's servant. Did God graciously write down his commandments on those two tablets of stone on Mount Sinai or Horeb? And did he give Moses numerous instructions for the tabernacle and for the service, especially for the service of the priests and for Christian living? He laid them on the hearts of his people that they might be blessed in not forsaking his precepts, that God's law would not just go in one ear and fly out the other, but that indeed it might settle on their hearts so that their daily lives in their relationships as brothers and sisters and indeed also their relationships to the world, that it might be according to God's holy word that they might realize as well as Malachi told them in chapter 3, verse 7, that they were to blame, for they turned away from those very decrees of the Lord. Should the Lord visit them with judgment, they had only themselves to blame. And that's why they are now called to remember God's law. And when Malachi says, remember God's law, he's not just putting a plug in their ear to stimulate their powers of recall, some casual, some casual form of, oh yeah, I remember that, when they heard the law read. No, but that they might delight in God's law again. That those precepts indeed might be bound on their hearts. For that law of God had been designed by the Lord to be the foundation of their life they had to build on that word. There would be no life to live unless they built it on indeed the rock-solid root ground of the God's law. 
And that law of God, as you know, is rich in promises. Tells the grace of God. You hear it every time. You hear also a sermon on the Ten Commandments, the second, third part of the Catechism. Always preceded by those words, I am the Lord your God who rescued you from slavery and oppression, idolatry in Egypt. Thereby the Lord God says, I provided for you a structure for Christian, for godly living, for a living, a life that is pleasing to me. A structure which would direct their hearts forward and upward to Jesus Christ. To Jesus Christ, the Messiah. While they acknowledged that they could not of themselves live in the sincerity of faith and obedience. Not even Moses not even God's servant Moses could do that on his own. Even he, in his own sinful nature, was a slave to sin. In congregation, this call to remember the law lies in the very real sense at the heart of the whole of Malachi's book, right from beginning to end. Time and again he urged, as did Nehemiah, as did Ezra, as did the other prophets, exhorted God's people to live their lives in faith, in truth, in holiness, yes, also in joy, in joy in the Lord. But they hadn't done so. They just had refused to do so. Instead, what did they do? They came to the tabernacle to bring their sacrifices, but they they brought blemished sacrifices. When the Lord God had insisted that they do not do that, they thought that the Lord would be sacrificed with bringing a lamb that had a broken leg or a blemished face or in some other way had some kind of fault. That was good enough for the Lord. They kept the best for themselves. Even though the Lord God reminded them, I am the Lord God who rescued you from slavery and oppression, live in thankfulness. The priests, by their teaching, by their teaching, not just their behavior, but by their teaching, says Malachi in chapter 2, verse 8, had caused many to stumble. Imagine that. The minister from the, pro- from the pulpit caused the people to go astray. By their marriages with heathen neighbors, Judah had desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves. By their very marriages with their heathen neighbors, they had defiled the holy worship of the Lord. They had robbed the Lord by refusing to bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. Chapter 3, verse 10. And yet, amazing, isn't it? The Lord God had kept for himself a remnant a remnant who feared the Lord. That's evident from chapter 3, 16, where their hearts are bound together. They had joined in a covenant, as it were, and they'd drawn up what in the NIV is called a scroll of remembrance in God's presence. God had listened. Yes, God indeed had seen, not only, but he had listened to them, and he had heard them, and he had promised that he would remain faithful to his treasured possession. That's the wondrous love of the Lord God, that even when a situation is gone, seemingly all bad, all wrong, all corrupt, he keeps for himself those who are his own. Oh, but even then he had reminded them of the great and terrible day of the judgment that was coming, a day of judgment that would be terrible for all evildoers whose hearts were not turned back to the Lord. 
Though for those who yet revered the name of the Lord, Malachi was allowed to say, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings. Chapter 2, verse 4, verse 2. They would be victorious. Even they would trample indeed over the wicked. Chapter 4, verse 3. And yet the blessings which would be theirs would only be gained in the way of bowing in faithfulness before the law of the Lord. Their lives planted on the bedrock of God's law, his holy word, that whole of the spoken and proclaimed word as well as the written word of God, his revelation. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and the laws that I gave him at Horeb, with these words, the Lord wanted to bound, bind his faithfulness on the hearts of his people. That they might expect the coming of their Savior in truth and in right, in faith and in love. That they would look forward indeed to the day when the Messiah would appear. Yes, that they might even look forward to the end, the graduation, if you like, of all things for the new heaven and the new earth. Day by day, looking to the Bible as the lamp unto their feet and a light to their path. For God desires his congregation to be his bride, a bridal congregation, a congregation that lives according to his precepts, the decrees and the vows that bind her to her groom. Were they to be faithful in this? Would they remember the law? it would indicate that they had returned to the Lord. Only in that way would the light of that sun of righteousness light also on them. If not, they would be left in the darkness of their sin. Only in this way would they be blessed by the day spring from on high. Isaiah, Malachi's fellow prophet, had spoken God's word some 300 years prior to this prophecy of Malachi. And he had said the same. You read in Isaiah 8, verse 20, to the law and to the testimony. Oh, then too, it had been a warning. Even to those who had consulted mediums and spirits, that had become common in their day, as it becomes common in places in our day. But they did not inquire of the Lord. They inquired of mediums and spirits, but not of the Lord. They'd been warned that if they did not obey God's word, then terror, then famine, then darkness, then distress would come upon them. And yet, once again, in Isaiah 9, there are those beautiful, well-known words where the prophet had gone on to speak of that great light which would be seen and that child who would be born, who would be called what? Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And now, brothers and sisters, this appeal of Malachi, it remains a universal appeal. It's still a rule for thankful Christian living. Oh, you know that indeed the law can't save us. We even have a hymn in our book of praise about that. Only the Lord Jesus Christ can save us. But it remains a law, indeed a rule, for thankful Christian living. That's why the explanation of the ten words of God's covenant is found in the third part of the catechism. 
the part concerning our gratitude, our thankfulness, that we might not follow the lisping and the lies and the slogans of the devil and this sinful world, nor the inclination of our own sinful hearts, but that we might cling to God's word, be built up in faith and in godliness by the word of God. And it is then as well an appeal which has a forward-looking, yeah, the theologians use a difficult word. They say it has an eschatological emphasis, just means to be a forward-looking emphasis. For the Lord Jesus Christ, born in Bethlehem, died. He was buried, but he ascended into heaven, and he will return. He was born to die. There's a picture in a book that was written by the late professor Dr. K. Schilder, who was a well-known theologian in the Netherlands, a woodcut of a picture of a baby in the cradle in Bethlehem. And then, in the background, against the wall, as it were, there's the cross. There's the cross. For Jesus was born to die. Only in that way would we have our sins paid for. And he returns. He will usher in that great day of the Lord of which Malachi speaks and of which many prophets spoke. A day of great and marvelous blessings for those who are faithful and yet a day of terror and a day of darkness for unbelievers and idolaters. Therefore, the call must continue to come from our pulpits as well as from our mouths Remember the law. Yes, remember it and remember the prophets. Hear and heed God's word and love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. For the whole law and the prophets hang on these commandments even as he, the Lord God, effects renewal of life by his gracious word. That in the second place. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. The prophet Malachi did not only instruct God's people concerning the foundation on which they were to build their lives as his possession. He addressed as well what we may call God's building program doesn't stop with laying that foundation, but his whole building program in which the congregation was to live in the expectation of their coming Savior. And so God had him address his people concerning the coming of the prophet Elijah. Now surely, speaking of a return of this prophet Elijah who had died many hundred years before the days of Malachi, that surely must have raised a few eyebrows in the days of Malachi and among the inhabitants of Judah. What? Would Elijah be resurrected? Would he perhaps come back to earth the same way as we read in Second Book of Kings? Indeed, Elisha saw him go with that fiery chariot pulled by fiery horses that indeed we interpret as being the angels of the Lord God who carried Elijah, as it were, back to heaven? Would he come back in the same way, in the flesh? 
And now it is so, according to the historians, that there were Jewish people then and today who did indeed expect the return of Elijah to come back even bodily. And he evidently was expected to make an end to the family feuds that were rampant upon them. And it could be, because family feuds are not only found among the Jews, that they are also found in others. And they pointed to Malachi 4. It says he would turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. So it seemed like Elijah would come back and he would straighten out family problems. And yet it isn't so that the problem that Malachi addresses here is feuds and quarrels among family members, nor does Malachi's prophecy concern a literal bodily return of the prophet Elijah. Oh, that might have stimulated the hearts of Malachi's hearers to think of Elijah returning on another chariot, but that's not what he had in mind. No, for Elijah, in God's word, is a symbol, you can say it's synonymous with that prophecy which was heard in the ranks of God's people throughout the centuries. When the angel Gabriel, and we read it in Luke 1.17, when he announces the birth of John the Baptist to his father, Zechariah, then he says, and he will go on before the Lord, I quote the NIV here, in the spirit and power of Elijah, in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. And then, and you have this remarkable phrase, it appears to be a quotation right from Malachi 4, verse 5, and yet the Holy Spirit takes the liberty to change the last words of that verse 5 a little bit, although it comes basically down to the same thing, when he says, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous. Malachi says, and the hearts of the children to the fathers. And then in Luke 1, it says, the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous. You can say that's God's own commentary on those last words of Malachi 4, verse 5. To make ready a people prepared for the Lord. This has been called the Benedictus, the song of blessing of Zechariah, a song of praise at the birth of his son when he says, and you, my son, will be called a prophet of the Most High, and you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him. And so it's clear that Malachi was speaking about John the Baptist, and that, this was in line with what Malachi had said in chapter 3 about that messenger who would prepare the way before the Lord. John the Baptist, he was the first one who would take up the thread of prophecy from the last part of the Old Testament. The same time he would be the last prophet before Christ, our chief prophet and teacher, would be born. That was the task of John the Baptist. And why this mention of Elijah? Well, surely it had to do with the fact that while Moses was instrumental, he received, after all, the law of God from the hand of God, instrumental in laying down the foundation for covenant living. It was God's gift of the law to Elijah, and he was responsible for confirming God's law for indeed teaching God's people again to live now according to that law, that his bride, God's people, might live in renewal of life every day. Elijah, 
has also been called a pioneer, a pathfinder of the messianic age. And you know, he, with his powerful preaching, came to God's people. And John the Baptist, what about him? Well, he was similar. He also spoke powerful words, some would say even shocking words. He even dared to call the leaders of God's church, those Pharisees and Sadducees, who also came, remarkably enough, to be baptized. Evidently, they didn't want to be left out. And he told them, who told you to warn, to run from the judgment which is to come? That he might turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and to turn the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous. The problem both in Malachi's day and in John the Baptist's day was not so much nasty family quarrels. Of course, they're always bad. No, there was a large-scale separation between the few God-fearing Israelites and the rest who had become unbelievers. It appears especially the younger generation was going that way. A new generation had been born, and it appears when you read the Bible that these, that new generation criticized the older ones, their refusal to go along with the times. Ah, these old fuddy-duddies, they're still living in the past. Get with it, mom, dad, grandpa, grandpa. This is the new age, you can just hear them saying. The times which involved mixed courtships, that was okay in their day. And an obsession with magic and the occult. What was wrong with that? Dabbling a little bit today in the magic and the occult, just like there are those who say, well, you know, I might play the lotteries, but I don't, I'm not in it every week, just maybe once every couple of months. They brought shameful offerings to the Lord, but they used the excuse that, well, they were still coming to church, you know. And that generation appeared to desire a compromise between a Christian lifestyle and that which was practiced by an unbelieving society. It always has in the history of God's people. So oftentimes has it been the case. There was a distance, a growing, indeed, discord also between a small believing remnant and those who were quite willing to go the way of the world. Scant attention to the doctrine of salvation, embracing with whatever was new and whatever was interesting. And so Eastern religions, which today are really making an inroads, which people dabbled in the occult, had infiltrated the communion of God's people. In John the Baptist, there was the Greek influence, the Hellenizing influence, and the influence of Rome with their public baths and all kinds of shameful behaviors that is threatening, indeed, the worship, the true worship of God. And in the process, the fathers who feared the Lord had become estranged from the young Israel, which did not seek him. No, it wasn't just a matter from one tra tradition being confronted with a somewhat different tradition. If that was the only problem, they might have been able to work that out. No, it was a matter of the heart. It was a matter of faith versus unbelief. And so there was a call for reformation in, in, in the sight and the face of deformation that even as God's people were to prepare for the coming of their Savior, they might be that people of whom the psalmist speaks, for instance, in Psalm 110. Troops 
willing on the day of his battle, troops, young people involved as well, willing to fight the good fight of the faith in holy array for the sake of their Savior, together with the older generation, together with them, in the service of King Jesus, who in majesty and glory preserves the bloom of Christian youth, even, to use the words of Psalm 110, verse 3, as the womb of the dawn, uses this marvelous expression, a poetic expression in Psalm 110, the womb of the dawn that gives birth each morning to the dew, the dew. God would have his young warriors flock to him and his word. In so doing, they would have their hearts. In so doing, they would have their hearts united to their fathers. By doing what was right in God's eyes. Those fathers, indeed, when their hearts were right, they beat for the rescue and the salvation of their children. Their hearts were turned to their children, the ranks of all of God's people, that together they would serve the Lord and not walk a road that would only lead to misery and to condemnation. It would be the blessing of a renewal of life, a reformation of living by the word of God. That word proclaimed by John the Baptist who called on God's people to be the bride again. He came in the power of Elijah, fearless, with the sharp words of one calling in the desert, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Produce fruit keeping with repentance, you brood of vipers. John the Baptist publicly denied that he was Elijah, although he confirmed that he was the one who, like Elijah, was the voice of one calling in the desert. Did he have the last word, John the Baptist? Does any minister have the last word? No, no. Christ Jesus, the thongs of whose sandals John the Baptist said he was unworthy to tie and untie. He had and he has the last word. He is the word made flesh. He came and he died, but he lives. He lives and he comes. And he comes for you and he comes for me if our faith is right with the Lord. That daily dying unto sin, we might live for him. Our lifestyle marked by a sincere desire to be there together with all of God's people when he returns to take us home. Yes, to stand, to stand in the love of Christ who will see to it that he completes that church building project with which he busied himself not only in the days of Malachi and John the Baptist, but in our days today, even to the close of the age. And in the process, he will not allow anyone to defy him, him, he who is the Lord of life. We need to hear something about that yet because they are the closing words of Malachi 4. and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. Moses and Elijah, did they not appear with the Lord Jesus on what is called the Mount of Transfiguration? I think the children know that story. When Jesus took Peter and James and John up to that mountain, 
And then for a moment, the Lord Jesus showed something of his glory. Even as he was prepared to go to the cross, for a moment, he appeared there in his bright and shining glory. And then Peter also wanted, indeed, also to, to build a booth there, right on that mountain, because he wanted to hang on to the Lord Jesus in that glory. And then they spoke with Jesus about his departure, his death on Calvary's cross, by which he would deliver his people from their sins. And our Savior listened, and he obeyed the will of his Father. One of the others present that time, the Apostle John, saw Christ Jesus once again. Saw him once again, after he had been glorified. He saw Christ, as we read in the last book of the Bible, in Revelation 1, verse 17, in great glory and power, dressed in a robe that reached down to the bottom of his feet, and he had a golden sash around his chest, and his feet, even his feet, were burnished bronze, bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of Niagara Falls, like rushing water, there the Lord Jesus appears, indeed, in his majesty. No more a baby in a cradle in Bethlehem. No more a suffering service, but the glorious King of kings who comes to judge the earth in righteousness. That Christ, that exalted Christ, will complete his church-building program. Oh, and in doing so, he doesn't hide the fact that his faithful people will undergo great trials. Yes, his faithful people, persecution, suffering for the sake of his name, only read Second Peter. And yet the end will come with a great and glorious freedom of the children of God. One day they will live on a renewed earth, free from all sin and all stain and all corruption, disease and terrorism and bloodshed. It will be better than paradise. I remember one time I mentioned that to my catechism students and one of them said, how can that be? How can the new earth be better than paradise? Well, in paradise, it was possible to sin. But on a new earth, it will be impossible to sin. And that's better. That's far better. Yes, that end will come. And yet, as someone has written, blessing and curse oftentimes are very close to each other. They're adjacent to each other. They lie close together. And so it is, even in our text. And so it will be at the end of days. The earth will undergo a grand sanctification, a renewal. It, indeed, it will be a renewal effected even by a purging with fire, as Peter writes about in his second letter, 2 Peter 3.12. And yet at the same time, the same Lord warns, indeed, about a curse. A curse with which he will strike the land, meaning even the habitation of his own people, Israel, the church, and the nations. And he will not allow anyone, any family, any nation, least of all his own covenant children, to defy him and to turn their backs on him. Was it not the danger in the days of Moses as well as in Elijah's days and in the days when God's own son was ready to make his appearance? And does the Apostle John not lament that he, the Christ, came unto his own, but his own did not receive him? 
a few shepherds, the despised ones of Israel. They went, indeed, to greet the Lord Jesus in that cradle in Bethlehem. And a few astronomers from afar, perhaps even from Mesopotamia, Babylon, they came. Where were the leaders of God's people? Where were God's people as a whole? He came unto his own, but his own did not receive him. And to know of this danger, to have the warning imprinted on our hearts, that's not a downer, that's not a squelcher of joy. In reality, this too is a blessing. It's the Lord who in his grace and his mercy warned his people in the days of Elijah and in the days of Malachi and the days of Moses also when you read in, in Deuteronomy 5, 6, 7. It was indeed a blessed warning. He did so when Christ Jesus was on earth and after he left to go back home and he does so in the very last words of the very last book of the Bible that we might realize our calling to be faithful until death and the return of our Savior. Not following what appears to be a growing crowd in our days of those who would compromise the truth, God's word, and the faithful, true doctrine of salvation, that salvation with unbelief. They would affect a union, a synthesis of sorts with what is not true and cannot be sustained by the Bible. And the result, mysticism, an embrace of different doctrines, not only, but indeed a lack of true spirituality, of true, indeed, Christian living in the home, in the church, and abroad. But the Lord is not pleased. He says, remember the law of my servant Moses. Malachi speaks of God's curse on what is known, or what is known as his ban, in which in the past he put nations, nations, whole nations under the ban. All those nations that were within the boundaries of what was Canaan, put them under the curse. It would come also, he says, on Israel as it once came on Edom. You read Isaiah 34, verse 5. And now we are headed, brothers and sisters, towards the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. There have been more than one person who has said to, do you hear the footsteps of our Lord Jesus Christ? Or are we sometimes so stuck in the here and now and the busyness of life or, or, or whatever it may be, that we forget to look up and to realize that Christ is on the way. Do we yearn for that? Do we pray, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus? Or would we rather see that coming, indeed still postponed? When the Apostle Paul closes off his letter to the church at Corinth, he does so in passing on God's blessing, as we receive God's blessing. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And the Apostle John, he does the same in the book of Revelation. Yet just prior to his closing words in 1 Corinthians 16, the Apostle Paul says, If anyone does not love the Lord, a curse be on him. A curse be on him. And then he does not say, oh Lord, please suspend your judgment, your return. Please wait. No, he says, Maranatha, come, oh Lord. 
For the end will not come without God's judgment on the wicked. Even when the Holy Spirit closes his revelation of the Old Testament, he does not dispense with his warning. For the hearts of the fathers must stay turned to the children. The disobedient must be turned to the wisdom of the righteous. No, not the self-righteous, but those who are righteous in the Lord Jesus Christ by a true faith. Not our own wisdom, but the wisdom of Jesus Christ. The wisdom of knowing him who is our wisdom, our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption, as Paul says at the close of chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians. All this in preparation for the coming of the Lord, then and now and tomorrow, right up to the day of the Lord, the day he rolls the clouds back, and he appears in glory to judge the living and the dead. May it then be that we will embrace his precious promises and heed his warning. May it be that those who have turned their backs to the Lord, and I know there can be hurt, so yes, also in Canadian Reformed families of those who have done that and don't want to listen anymore. May it be that while they have time, they may return to the way of the Lord. May they hear, indeed, the pleas, the urgent pleas of the heart by brothers and sisters, by family, by friends, by ministers, by office bearers. Yes, may the world, also this Canada of ours, in which there are many blessings for which we may be thankful, but which indeed you see more and more returning away from the Lord. May they hear and heed before Christ comes back. Yes, may it be that many will be stopped if the track they are on is one in which they are headed for destruction. May it be that the church of Jesus Christ may covet his blessing. May it be that we will live in true fellowship each and every day going about our work. The children tomorrow again who go back to school and their teachers doing their work in the joy and fear of the Lord. Doing it indeed also with the prospect of the return of Jesus Christ. Cherishing indeed the freedoms that we have. Indeed maintaining the truth. Remembering as John was also allowed to say that yet to all who received him to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And then if children, heirs, heirs of life everlasting. Praise God from whom such blessings flow. Amen. <laughs>